0: Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple." For which of you, if he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, everyone who sees it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build but was not able to finish. Or what king, as he goes out to confront another king in war, will not first sit down and consider if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? And if he is not able, he sends out a delegation and asks for terms of peace while his opponent is still far away. So then, any of you who does not say farewell to all his own possessions cannot be my disciple. This is the gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus calls us to follow him as his disciples. But who's counting is usually a phrase that is employed in a sarcastic or passive aggressive manner. For example, your spouse may turn to you and say, I've done the dishes five times this week compared to your zero, but nah, who's counting? Or your boss might say, This is the third day in a row you've been late, but who's counting? That's how it's usually used, pass aggressively in a sarcastic way, to not so subtly point out where someone has failed. But today we're going to steal that phrase and and ask it sincerely, ask it honestly. Seriously, who is counting? The cost of discipleship has to be counted and it must be paid. But who is responsible for doing the counting and the paying? Now if you were just reading these words at home, what would you take away from them? What would you understand that Jesus is trying to teach us in these words? I'd be willing to wager that most of us would read these words through the, through the lens of the third use of the law, that it has a guide, that here Jesus is teaching us how to live Christian lives. So if you read it through the third use of the lens, then this is your takeaway, that unless you hate your family, Unless you hate your own life, unless you take up your cross and follow Jesus, you cannot be his disciple. You cannot be saved. Are you even going to start? Like Jesus' parables that he tells here, are you even going to start building that tower after counting that cost? If you realize that you're being asked to step onto a battlefield where you are vastly outnumbered, two to one, are you even going to start that battle? Is this how we should understand these words? Through the third use of the law. I'm not denying that the third use of the law is a legitimate use of God's law. The Bible itself establishes and encourages us to view the law as a guide for living Christian lives. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Paul was using the third use of the law when he, when he wrote to Philemon and said, Philemon, I ask you to welcome your slave Onesimus back with open arms as a fellow brother in Christ. The third use of the law is legitimate, and we do need it. Uh, The C.S. Lewis, the Christian writer, referred to the third use of the law as like stepping out of a bog onto a firm roadway. And what he meant by that is that, as we all know, the the world is so upside down, misunderstanding what morality is, uh, that, that it's, it's like being lost in a bog, right? You, you, you look at our world and, and it doesn't make any sense anymore. It doesn't seem like anybody has any real moral compass anymore. Men are women and women are men and, and, and children can change their genders as often as they want to. And so St. Louis, I think, is right. He says God's law, lights a path through this world. It clearly delineates what is right and what is wrong, what is evil and what is good, so that we know where we are walking as Christians, even though we are living in a world that is lost in the fog of demonic gray. The third use of the law is legitimate, and we need it. And it does appear in scripture. But is that how Jesus is using the words here? Is Jesus setting out a guide, a way for us to live as Christians? Is he really saying, if you don't hate your family, if you don't hate your life, if you don't take up your cross, you cannot be my disciple and you cannot be saved? I don't think he can be using it as a guide, as a third use. And there are a couple of tip-offs. First, Jesus says that, or Luke says that there were large crowds following Jesus. So Jesus is not only speaking to his disciples, in fact, he's probably not even speaking directly to his disciples, but there, while they might be there, he's speaking to crowds of people who are following him, and that would include unbelievers. And if you remember all the way back to confirmation class, we learned that the third use of the law is only for Christians. Only Christians who have already been called to faith will want to follow God's law, will want to live Christian lives isn't speaking to Christians here, but to unbelievers. The other is in the the many parables. Jesus is saying to sit down and calculate the cost, calculate if you have what it takes before making the commitment to become his disciple, not after. So Jesus is not using the third use of the law here. He is using the law, but in its first use, a mirror. Not to show us how to live, but to show us how we have failed to live. So let's just be very clear here. The first use of the law shows us how we have failed to live as Jesus' disciples. Now if you want to get to heaven under your own power, this is what you must do perfectly for your entire lifetime. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not have his own father and mother, wife and children, mothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You cannot allow any friends or family to get between you and your Savior for one moment, for any reason. You must fear the wrath of God more than you fear Moses' anger or a temper tantrum from your child. You must love your relationship with your Savior more than your relationship with your siblings. You must trust God's word above all things, even when your family doesn't want to hear it, even when it's very unpopular in our world, even when it doesn't even feel right to you, you must trust God's word above all things. And that's not even the hardest part. Jesus says you must hate your own life. At any given moment of any day, you must be willing to sacrifice everything for your Savior. Your reputation, your job, your house, your home, your family. Yes, even all the way up to your own life. You must be willing at the drop of a hat to sacrifice all of it if Jesus asks you to. Sounds daunting, right? Which is why Jesus uses the illustration of a cross says, whoever does not take up his own cross cannot follow me, cannot be my disciple. Now, I know these days we, fa- we fashion nice shiny crosses to put in our church and hang around our necks and put on our walls at home, but in the Roman Empire, cross had only one purpose, that is to kill. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that if you want to be my disciple, you must put everything to death, Your ambitions, your desires, your pleasures, your pride, your self-righteousness, all of it has to die. Even your affection for your family and even that most intimate relationship you have with your own life, it all must be put to death if you want to be his disciple and if you want to be saved if the third use of the law is like stepping out of a bog, a marsh onto a firm road surface, then the first use of the law is like a knife through the heart. It kills everyone it touches, right? Can any one of us claim that we have hated our families, hated our own lives, picked up our cross, built a, a tower of a Christian life that could reach all the way to heaven, Stepped out on the spiritual battlefield and fought against sin, death, and the devil and defeated them every single time? How many times have we vowed? Maybe even as we are leaving here, leaving God's house, have we vowed, I'm going to live a better life. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to try harder. I'm not going to fall back into the ditch of sin that, I, that, I, that you just pulled me out of through your forgiveness. How many times have we tried to build that tower of a Christian life only to see it smashed in ruins when we give in to temptation? How many times have we said to ourselves, I'm not going to let the devil trick me this time. No better because God's Word has told me the right way to live only to surrender to Him by giving in to temptation. How many times have we allowed our natural affection for our families to get in between us and Jesus, to make us deny our commitment to Him. Let's just be very specific here with probably the, the biggest issues that we face with our own families. If we condone or accept or tolerate a loved one who is living a sinful lifestyle, living with someone they are not married to, we are breaking our commitment to Jesus. We are sinning. We are loving our families more than we love Him. If we have a loved one who has fallen into the habit of disregarding, of neglecting the means of grace, the gospel and word and sacrament, and we just let them go on, just let them slip further and further away from church without ever saying anything, we are letting Jesus down. We are disobeying His command. We are loving our families more than Him. So now understanding clearly what it costs to follow Jesus... Are you willing to start building that tower? Are you willing to step onto the battlefield against spiritual enemies that have you vastly outnumbered? Do you have what it takes to be Jesus' disciple? I don't think that any of us would be bold enough to say that we have what it takes, that we can build the tower, that we can defeat our spiritual enemies because every day of our lives proves that we have not. So what's the other option? Why even waste our time here, right? Well, the other option is to give up. Seriously, give up trying to be Jesus' disciple. Isn't that what he says in our last, uh, the last verse here? Anyone of you who does not say farewell to all his possessions, I prefer the translation give up. Give up everything. Cannot be my disciple. Now he's not really talking about your stuff here. He's not saying you have to go home and sell everything you have. He's talking about giving up everything you are. All those things that we mentioned before that must be crucified. Give up your pride. Give up your passions. Give up your desires. Give up, most importantly, your self-righteousness. Give up any idea that you could possibly build a life as a Christian that is enough to follow Jesus. That Give up any idea that you can really pick up your cross and follow him to heaven. Give it up. I think this comes as probably strange or alien for us to hear. Give up trying to follow Jesus. Because in the church today, there seems to be this, this wrong idea of what a disciple is. I think if you ask your average Christian out there in the world, what does it mean to be a disciple? They would probably say a disciple is someone who does what Jesus commands. Well, is that true? If that's what a disciple is, do any of us qualify? Do any of us do everything that Jesus commands? That's not what a disciple is. Rather, a disciple is one who believes that Jesus has done it all. Just look at the example of Mary and Martha. Martha is running around trying to do all these things for Jesus. She is gently uh, scolded for it. Mary is just sitting there listening, soaking up Jesus' words, and she is commended for it. A disciple is not a doer, but a receiver. So after you've given up all hope of achieving discipleship for yourself because you don't have what it takes, sit and listen to what Jesus has done for you sometime in the dark depths of eternity Jesus sat down and calculated exactly what it would cost to save you and I think the cost is laid out pretty clearly right here in these words right what did it cost Jesus to save you from hell well did he hate his family it certainly seemed to at least he he set them in second place after you he left his father's throne in and his mother as he was hanging on the cross because he loved you more? His family thought it was crazy. While he was alive, his brothers didn't believe in him, and yet Jesus didn't let them that dissuade him from his task of redemption. Did Jesus hate his own life? Well, he certainly didn't seem to take very good care of himself. He starved for 40 days in the wilderness as he was being tempted by the devil. He never owned a home. He didn't hardly have a place to rest his head. His clothing was stripped off of him as he was nailed to a tree. He certainly didn't seem to love his life. He walked willingly to Jerusalem into the hornet's nest of his enemies, knowing exactly what it would mean for him that he would be arrested and tortured and crucified. He didn't love his life more than he loved you. Jesus sat down and considered the cost of building a tower. He has built the only perfect Christian life that has ever been lived. He calculated the cost of what it would mean for him to go to war against the spiritual forces of darkness that seemed, seemed to have him outnumbered. He counted all of that cost. He calculated it and knew that it would cost him no less than his life to save yours. And he willingly paid that Christ Jesus has what it takes to make you his disciple. So if you want to follow him, there's only one thing you really have to do, give up. Give up any idea that you could build a tower of a Christian life that would reach all the way to heaven. Give up any idea that you can defeat sin, death and the devil all by yourself. You cannot. Instead, retreat to the, the fortress, the castle that Jesus built for you. I think that's, that's kind of what Luther had in mind when he paraphrased Psalm 46 and wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. As a, he's envisioning it as a place to retreat to. Give up trying to follow Jesus on your own and retreat to the fortress that he has already built. When you feel like you're being drawn away from him, run back to your baptism. Because in your baptism, the, the doors of that castle swing wide open for you because you have been clothed in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When you feel like you're weak and you're giving into temptation more than you ought, run back here to hear the absolution through which you take shelter inside the mighty walls of God's grace. When you feel like you can't do it anymore, Come up here to receive the Lord's Supper, to be fed and nourished with his true body and blood, which protect you from the attacks of Satan and the world around us. There's really only one thing you need to do if you want to follow Jesus. Give up. Give up thinking that you could do it all on your own. Give up thinking that you can carry the cross of discipleship, that you can say no to the devil, that your family ties won't get in the way. Give up thinking that way and trust that Jesus has done it for you. He has built a fortress in which you can take shelter. He has earned for you God's grace in which you find forgiveness. The only counting that you need to do today is to count Jesus as your substitute, as your sacrifice, as your righteousness, as your Lord and Savior because that faith Believing that everything he did, he did for you, is really all that it takes to be a disciple. Amen.